Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing energy policy. In particular, we're discussing Australia's seemingly endless search for a consistent and comprehensive policy framework for energy and climate change. It's a story of ad hocery and missed opportunity of political backflips and policy incoherence. But today I'm joined by two Grattan gurus who may be able to help us through the mess. Firstly, Grattan's Energy Program Director, Tony Wood. Tony, welcome to you. Paul. And Tony and I are also joined by Grattan's Energy Fellow, Guy Dundas. Hello, Guy. Hi, Paul. Now, Tony's just published a policy paper with a pretty ambitious title. It's called Australia's Energy Transition, A Blueprint for Success. And I'm keen to get to that blueprint shortly. But first, I want to home in on two hotspots in the energy policy wars, Victoria and New South Wales. Victoria first. Tony, there seems to be rising concerns that Victorians may be in for a long, hot summer replete with power shortages and blackouts. Should Victorians be worried? Well, I can tell you I'll be spending most of the summer in Victoria, um, and I wouldn't do that if I was panicking about the possibility of power outages, Paul. So I think um, we should be uh, not worried, but equally it makes sense to ensure that things, actions are taken now, because there are some things that could threaten um, power supplies if certain combinations of circumstances arise during the, particularly the latter part of summer. We've seen it uh, this year, earlier this year. Um, those circumstances were unusual. Unusual circumstances seems to be almost uh, becoming the norm in a, in a weird sense. So yeah, I think we should be uh, interested, m- making sure that the appropriate agencies are taking the appropriate actions, but we shouldn't be panicking or alarmed at all, really. I don't think we should be surprised either that this uh, has led to yet another bout of blame shifting and name calling between the federal and the Victorian governments. What are the feds saying, Tony, and what are the Victorians saying? And to the extent that it's possible to say, who's right? Well, both of them have got some fingerprints, or they, they or their, or their governments have got fingerprints over a problem or a set of problems in Victoria, which is. Uh, not particularly exciting, and it reflects some of the challenges for Australia globally. So specifically, um, right now, Victoria's wholesale electricity prices are the highest in the national electricity market, whereas only four years ago, they were the lowest. Mm -hmm. Secondly, um, Victoria's emissions, courtesy, to be fair, of a great history of brown coal generation in the state, um, our emissions intensity, that is the tonnes of CO2 per megawatt hour, are the highest in Australia. And thirdly, um, as those old coal-fired power stations, which have contributed and still do to that intensity, as they're ageing and we've already seen one big one close, um, the consequences of that partly have contributed to a concern about have we got the reliability. And so when that happens, the blame starts to occur. And um, We see the, uh, the federal government saying, well, this is all being caused by your reckless renewable energy targets. And the Victorian government shouts back, well, this is all being caused by your lack of clear policy at a national level. Um, Unfortunately, what we don't see is any serious attempt to recognise that maybe both have their fingerprints on this and some form of cohesive approach would be better, but I wouldn't be looking for that anytime soon, I don't think. Some, Some form of cohesive approach. You've identified a few 
unhelpful policies or approaches, I suppose, that, that each side, the Victorian government and the federal government, should abandon? Well, there's a few things, and they go across the board in a sense. Firstly, uh, both the federal government and outside Victoria and Victorian government, specifically Victoria, have introduced some uh, what effectively is a retail price cap. Now, that may have some short-term benefits for some customers, but it will almost certainly have negative effects for the majority of customers over time. Secondly, we've seen uh, the, the issue of the uh, federal government looking to underwrite or fund a new uh, generation when they should be leaving that to the sector. We've got a market, we supposedly believe in that market, and yet we seem to in some ways not trust it. As a consequence, the federal government's announced it's gonna underwrite some projects, um, and it's also threatening energy companies with a very large stick in terms of the sorts of things it would do if they misbehave or don't do more accurately what the feds would like. The Victorian government, on the other hand, um, for the reasons I mentioned, that is that the Victorian governments have stepped, they would say, into the breach created by the absence of federal climate policy, but they've introduced a, a state renewable energy target. And what that does is exactly the opposite of what you want from an effective market. It basically um, uh, changes the pricing signals in the market, distorts the way the market works, and again, provides a very difficult environment for new investment. So they're the things that we need to move away from if we're trying to get back on track. But you've also nominated several positive steps that each government could take that would be helpful. Well, there's a few things that, uh, and sometimes these aren't the sexiest things you can think of. Um, you can look at, for example, in Victoria, which broadly still is and for a long time was an exporter of power. Um, at times now, with the changing system, it actually is, is perfectly sensible and efficient for Victorians sometimes to import power from other places because we do have situations where the wind may be blowing in Tasmania but not in Victoria. The sun may be, you know, the same thing may be happening in New South Wales but not in Victoria. And so, um, modest increments to the transmission linkages between the states would benefit almost certainly both Victoria and New South Wales, for example, at different times of the year. Now, um, these are things that have been recognised for a while. We just need to get on with those sorts of, um, those sorts of things. Um, the second thing I think is we need to get seriously, the big issue remains, although it sounds like a bit of a broken record from people like ourselves, we need to get stable, credible emissions policy. And that means the Commonwealth basically either getting into the space and doing something on a national basis and therefore the states can back off or individual states can back off. Alternatively, if the Commonwealth find that it finds that it is unable to do so, then it would make sense for the states to get together and say, look, we'll do it. And a national state-based approach um, would potentially be second best, but at least doable compared with where we are now. And the alternative of having all the states continuing to do their own unilateral approaches, um, I think is a very bad outcome. So there are a couple of the things, Paul, I think that would start to set us back on a, a sensible pathway to address the sort of concerns that Victorians would have. And the other big issue in Victoria, it gets a lot of publicity, um, and more recently, we've seen this in the, in the front pages of the papers, and that is around the future of the coal-fired power stations. Uh, at the moment, um, there's a lot of uncertainty being partly created by the age of the power stations themselves and partly created by the very policies that the Victorian government's introduced where that it, may put, it may put financial pressure on power stations like the Latrobe Valley's Yalorn, uh, power station, and that may uh, that very uncertainty creates a problem. And so, what we need there is some uh, sensible policies. And we've got some ideas which we'll be talking about uh, in the next little while 
of how that might be done. Okay, so in the Victorian case, we've got a state Labor government and a federal coalition government taking policy potshots at each other. But Guy, in New South Wales, we have a state coalition government and it too seems to be quite willing to bump up against the federal coalition government on energy and climate policy. What's going on in New South Wales, Guy? Uh, I think the issues are a little bit different in New South Wales uh, than in Victoria. It's a bit more of a slow burn. So the issue that a lot of people are thinking about is the um, expected closure of the Liddell power station in the Hunter Valley. That's scheduled for March 2023. And so everyone's wondering about what the summer, let's say January 2024, will bring. Will New South Wales look like Victoria, where the, the, the forecast for this summer is quite tight in Victoria? Will New South Wales look like that in early 2024? Okay, so tell me, should people and businesses in New South Wales be worried about electricity supplies, particularly post Liddell? Our view is no. Uh, Four years is quite a long way away and there's a lot happening and a lot more that can be done in that four years to address those concerns. Every year, the energy market operator, AEMO, puts out a forecast that looks at how the market's shaping. And obviously for the coming summer, that's of particular interest, but it's a 10-year forecast. And so people look out and say, how are things looking a few years down the track? Those forecasts tend to get people uh, a bit excited sometimes and, and newspapers love it. They usually get a headline with blackouts in it. And, and the trick is that the forecast assumes that other than generators that are basically being built today, it assumes that nothing will be built and then projects forward. So it tends to see a gap as um, demand grows over time, you tend to see a gap four or five years out. And that's especially the case in New South Wales with the Liddell power station closing. But there are a number of power stations that have been built in the last year. So the 2019 forecast looks a lot better than the 2018 forecast did. And I would expect the same would be true in the 2020 forecast, again in the 2021 forecast and so on. The point being there's a lot of time between now and January 2024. Okay, but you've also written, Guy, that the biggest threat to electricity reliability in New South Wales is more ill-conceived federal government interventions. What are, what are the feds doing wrong? Yeah, so just to, I guess, to put that in context, we see two um, large energy companies, AGL and Energy Australia, that are planning gas-fired power stations. They have the approvals and the sites lined up. Those power stations can easily be delivered before January 2024. What the federal government's done is it said, we want to see more dispatchable power in the market, and, and gas is one form of that. And they've um, developed this program that Tony talked about, what's called the Underwriting New Generation Investments Program. But the large companies are excluded because they're also concerned about competition. So what they're actually doing is is promoting projects that would compete with these other projects. Now, those, those projects that the federal government are supporting would find it very hard to get online in many cases by, let's say, January 2024. So it's actually making... The, that, that post-Liddell summer harder to manage. And we think that it just creates a lot of uncertainty and actually um, damages investments that are the ones that the market really needs today. Okay, and there's another big and controversial idea that's been thrown into the mix, particularly it seems to me in New South Wales, nuclear power, nuclear energy. That seems to be back on the table, Guy. So the federal uh, minister has set a request of parliamentary inquiry, and that's on foot now, looking at nuclear power. And uh, the New South Wales treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, also um, threw onto the table that he thought nuclear was an important part of Australia's energy mix. 
It seems like about every 10 years we look at this, people might remember the Ziggy Switkowski review from 2006 under Prime Minister Howard. And look, I think firstly, it's important to say we, of course, should be open-minded to energy options and consider the issues calmly and look at the real pros and cons. So it's not that having an inquiry into nuclear power is per se a problem. I think it is a problem, though, if we expect too much of it. So with nuclear, there's obvious issues around uh, safety and a regulatory regime that would give people confidence to to have that power as part of Australia's energy mix. Um, at the moment, it's illegal, reflecting those concerns. So in very broad terms, and, and this is consistent with what Switkowski talked about over 10 years ago now, you'd need to spend about 10 years setting up a regulatory regime for nuclear power, and then you'd probably spend another 10 years building a power station. So energy consumers can't expect too much in the short or even the medium term from nuclear power. It might be part of Australia's energy mix in, let's say, the 2040s, but We've got more pressing things to think about today, and and I think ultimately it could be a distraction. Okay, so that brings us pretty neatly to um, your new policy paper, Tony, the one with the very ambitious title. We'll come to your blueprint for success soon, but first, tell us how this policy paper came about, because I think it dates back to an important Grattan gathering earlier this year. Well, Paul, these um, Grattan gatherings are held annually and we usually cover issues that have not yet crystallised in a specific topic for a, for a Grattan deep dive, but broadly cover some of the concerns that people might have across a particular sector. And then from that, we sometimes do distill uh, some work that Grattan might pursue. So we, we encouraged and brought together about 20 people from across the sector for a couple of days to talk about, well, where's this all going? Uh, and the fundamental thing that everybody agreed on is that we are transitioning to a low emissions future, near zero emissions in the energy sector, at least by mid-century. Now, you can worry about the precise numbers, but that's the general trend. And the concern is not that we won't get there. The concern that came out of this meeting was that if we don't do the right things today, we'll do this badly. And badly means almost certainly higher cost and could even in the process be a bumpy ride in respect of the security of the reliability of the system. And so out of that, um, we started to distill, a couple of us at Grattan and others, distill the, the piece of work which we published in this paper that said, look, there are many things to be done in the short term. We certainly understand that at times governments have to respond specifically politically when we have a blackout, for example, or when prices go high, whatever that might be, because because energy is political and politicians have to respond to those tensions. However, what we're also then saying, well, when we look beyond the immediate issue, if we are to make this transition in a way that is smoother than it might otherwise be, then there's only there's a few things that need some fundamental um, processing, reprocessing, rehoning, reprioritizing that would make a big difference to produce a much more a low cost and more smooth transition to that low emissions future. Indeed. And you you talk in the paper about this energy transition being an historic, unprecedented policy challenge for Australia. Is it really that big? Well, it is for the energy sector and also in another way for the general economy because the Western world, I mean, the world we know as today, not just the Western world, the entire world, many parts of what we enjoy today are fundamentally have arisen over the last couple of hundred years 
for energy. The way we've been able to harness energy uh, and produce the economic benefits that many of us enjoy today have come from access to energy. Australia has been an energy superpower uh, for a long part of the last hundred years. And in some ways, that very position is now under threat um, because the fundamental challenge of climate change is driving some big, big changes, both in terms of investment, but also in the way we move away from, in, in, in a sense, without catastrophic failure, uh, move away from the, what we used to have. A distributed system will be the, will be the norm. We may very well see um, no longer burning gas over time. Um, we'll certainly see um, people talking about other things like um, hydrogen, and uh, you were talking with Guy about uh, your, um, about uranium, nuclear energy. These things are all being opened up in a way we've never seen before, and that creates the, the, the scale of the challenge, I think, Paul. So, Tony, you paint this fascinating picture in the paper of a, a really very different Australia in 30 years' time, 2050. Uh, take us through that um, futuristic scenario. Well, I guess ideally... For most people, things won't look that much different. Um, if it works, if we do this well, people will still have access to the energy they need in their homes and businesses. It will come from different sources. Um, those sources will probably have much more capacity to deliver electricity because they'll be intermittent, but there, may not be, there won't be that much difference in terms of energy. We may become more efficient in the way we use energy. We, we'll almost certainly see the progressive closure of fossil fuel powered, uh, fossil fuel fired generation and the replacement of that with wind and solar. But if we do this well, the vast majority of consumers won't see any difference. Now, there will be some differences in other areas associated with energy, such as transport. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not about to predict how quickly or slowly we might see um, uh, internal combustion engines replaced with, uh, with, battery, with uh, electric vehicles or even hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. But the trend will occur almost certainly when major manufacturers, as they already are starting to do, start to produce these vehicles in volume, the price will come down. Um, an electric vehicle is much cheaper to run. And that has implications for the way we even move around our cities, particularly if you see autonomous vehicles. Now, that's a different world. Um, but largely speaking, I think for most of us, that energy, the, the point of the whole energy transition is not to change our lifestyles. The point of the transition is to be able to live a modern lifestyle, but with access to the energy we need to support that lifestyle. Okay, so here's a little question for you. How do we get there, Tony? What's what's the blueprint? Well, when you get into the things that have to change from where we are today to make sure we stay on a smooth path, some of these things can sound a little bit arcane, um, and, and maybe people argue this is only of importance to energy policy wonks like, um, like the Grattan Institute. Um, but looking at a couple of them, they become fundamentally important. And one is, the first one is something that uh, we've been talking about for a while. We're not the only ones are concerned about this, and that's the need to integrate energy and climate change policies. And when I say uh, integrate, I mean energy, not just electricity, but also um, uh, gas, uh, also uh, transport, um, and also industrial energy, which is, which is necessary for a lot of manufacturing processes. Once we start to do that, we might see some ways of um, giving some clarity around investment. Now, at the moment, we've got a Commonwealth government who is struggling with that for political reasons. Um, we don't need to go into that now, but they've been struggling with this for a while. If that continues, it does make sense, potentially, for the states to work together. And of course, the interesting thing here is historically, the states and territories have been the ones who had all the ownership and the legislative responsibility for energy anyway. 
If they were to extend that to cover making sure that we reduce emissions, that may not be a bad thing if it was done well. But you're, to, you're conceiving of a situation where the Commonwealth Government of Australia is excluded from this national imperative to reduce emissions. Well, that would be a, an extreme outcome, I think, and from my perspective, an undesirable one. But the challenge at the moment is if the Commonwealth is unwilling or unable to participate, then we still need to take action and therefore, and certainly having a common approach implemented by the states and territories would be preferable to each of the states and territories doing, doing their own thing, which would be a far more uh, uncoordinated um, arrangement. Now, how this might play out, I've got no real idea yet, but I can see that there's ways of doing it. And I would encourage the states and territories to try and work with the Commonwealth to develop a national approach to this. So that's the first big thing I think we need to see. The second thing is that the Coag Energy Council, which is the body that comprises all the ministers we've just been talking about, is very important to the energy sector in terms of developing a legislative direction, in terms of having a commitment to a national approach, even though we do have you know, a large country and a relatively small population spread across that country, we do have a national approach because most of the time there's benefits by each of the states being part of that national system. The problem we've got is in recent times, and we've discussed some of those already on this podcast, is that the states and the Commonwealth aren't necessarily behaving as the, in a way that suggests they're committed to that national approach. And so what we're suggesting is we do need a fundamental recommitment to the national, what's called the Australian Energy Market Agreement. And that's the agreement under which the Energy Council works. And the, fund, the most important priority is a, national, is a commitment to a national approach, an agreement that if any individual jurisdiction does want to implement some form of unilateral policy, and re remember these are sovereign governments, they can do that, then that sort, of in, that sort of concept needs to be subject at least to a review by an independent body to make sure that we understand what the consequences would be. Um, and I think if we had that sort of commitment, and this is one that was also recommended by Alan Finkel, and less famously than his clean energy target, is one that was actually accepted by all the states and territories, but has never been implemented. Okay, so this great transition, the big energy transition, is is a, a pretty urgent national task, isn't it? I think one of the one of the things that comes through your policy paper loud and clear is that we don't have time to lose. No, we, we look, we do not. There are a number of things happening now which are illustrative of the fact that we are not heading in the right path. I mean, inefficient investments, uh, governments intervening because. They're forced to for political reasons. They seem to have lost trust in themselves and their, their own legislation, as well as having lost trust in the agencies whose job it is and should be to implement the policies that are legislated by governments. And we need to return to that robust governance structure where the, where the governments together define and implement policy. They then turn that over to, for implementation to the agencies to encourage investment from the private sector. And if you, we return to that and have that commitment, and not only a commitment to that from the governments, but also from the agencies who are responsible for the energy system, then we've got some chance of avoiding where I think we're going now, which is quite messy and in the worst case could almost be an abandonment of the national, what has been for many, many years, a commitment to a, an efficient market approach to both investment and, uh, and operation. Okay, so, so tie this all up for me, Tony. You and Guy have talked about 
continuing political spats between the federal government and various state governments. You've spoken about concerns, even fears, that there could be some blackouts or electricity shortages this summer and in coming years. And yet, I detect a note of optimism in your policy paper. You think we can pull this off, don't you? I do, fundamentally. Um, right now, sometimes it's hard to see beyond the, the, the rocky shoals we seem to have run into. But I think the fundamental things, firstly, the, in the immediate future, if we don't run into some really nasty rocky territory, then the situation is actually relatively benign. As Guy was saying, the probability of us actually having um, blackouts is actually very, very low indeed. And we've got a couple of short-term problems, particularly in Victoria, around some power stations that are currently offline. But if we can get through that period of time, and if we get what is a relatively modest investment in some of the transmission things that we've mentioned already, and if we then pull back from these ad hoc interventions by governments and start to see some uh, them giving having more confidence in the system, then I think start after we get a little bit of uh, experience with success, then success breeds more success. So that's where my source of optimism comes from. I think Paul, that once we can get uh, get out of the this current mire we might have some chance of pulling back from that. And I think then maybe also our political leaders can then agree that we've got a way forward. Tony and Guy, thank you so much for your expertise and your explanations and for injecting that um, note of optimism into Australia's energy and climate policy wars. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read Tony's Energy Policy Blueprint, or indeed any of Tony and Guy's reports and articles, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. And you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.